Hello everyone and welcome back to The Lisa Burke Show and it's my great pleasure now to introduce you to my three guests starting with Philip Vesterlund. Philip is originally from Sweden, a psychologist and entrepreneur based in Luxembourg since 2019. He's won numerous awards including those from the Ministry of Economy in Luxembourg and was dubbed the most influential circular economy entrepreneur and pioneer on the continent of Europe. His company, Our Choice, launched the world's first circular sneakers on Kickstarter in 2021, raising over $10,000 within a week. The product range now also sells circular card holders made from upcycled fish skin and soon, just in time for summer, circular sunglasses. The company is now planning a pivot as Philippe and his team are building a marketplace for verified circular products to unite the full supply chain and establish new market standards in fashion. And so customers can think about their fashion with access to repair, resell, upcycle or recycle a zero waste loop for as long as possible. And my other two guests form a team, Antoine Welter and Xavier Kohl, the founders of Circulion, upcycling batteries from the automotive sector and power tools. Antoine is the CEO of Circulion. He partially grew up in the US and he definitely has the you can do what you want with a want to attitude. <laughs> a master in finance and marketing, 10 years studying and working outside of Luxembourg and has been involved in 15 ventures. And Xavier Cole is the CTO of Circulion, leading the development of the automated battery disassembly system. He has a PhD in chemical engineering from the ETH Zurich and has worked in renewable energy and the chemical industry. Circulion is leading the development of the automated battery disassembly system. That is the automated disassembly of battery packs for upcycling lithium-ion battery cells, building carbon dioxide neutral energy storage systems with upcycled battery cells. Welcome to you all. It's wonderful to have a room full of entrepreneurs here. And Philippe, I'm going to start with you. You're sort of a superstar on the entrepreneurial scene now here in Luxembourg and doing it all directly out of university, if not during university as well. How did this passion for the circular economy and then your business idea grow? Well, thanks for having me and thank you for uh, those kind, kind words. Um, I did uh, come to Luxembourg for my studies, so I started my master's degree here in 2019. I've always been full of energy and uh, many ideas. Uh, I've always spent my summers on the Swedish West Coast, so we do have uh, quite of a problem with plastic waste coming in with the currents, mainly from the UK and Ireland. Oops, sorry about that. Actually. Um, <laughs> sorry. So uh, part of our summers uh, is to clean up, to clean up our beaches and our shores. And at one point I was looking down at my feet and I was thinking, hey, why am I wearing plastics while still you know, cleaning up plastics? So the equation just, I mean, it doesn't add up. So the idea... I guess, was born right on the beach. And then, you know, being at the University of Luxembourg, the incubator is very close. So I knocked on the door and it was a very warm welcome. And I guess the um, the rest is history. So whilst you're doing your master's, you simultaneously founded this company with that idea from standing on the beach in the west of Sweden and they helped you. So it was really important to have that help and mentorship of the University of Luxembourg incubator. Definitely, definitely. And, uh, you know, I have the energy, but my degree is in psychology. So for me, it's really about the consumer behavior. And, you know, why do we behave the way we do around fashion items or any products? There are so many factors. 
Well, I'm very interested in your psychology degree, actually. And I'm wondering if you can give us a few tips. And for the other two co-founders in the room here, how does psychology help you in your business? Well, I think there are many tools, but it's, you know, it's also only because you know stuff doesn't mean that you, you know, automatically apply it to yourself. I mean, we see it among doctors, psychologists. Uh, You also see it among cobblers, right? A cobbler's pair of shoes. They're not always clean. Uh, But definitely when it comes to stress, how to manage, how to plan your day. I think uh, many people in Luxembourg, whatever their métier, have stressful, busy lives and have to manage their days, juggling all sorts. So how do you do it then as a busy entrepreneur? As a busy entrepreneur, I tend to go back to basics. So we're talking about, you know, eating, sleeping, uh, resting, also doing something completely uh, different. Because if you burn out, I mean, your business or your work is is not going to happen. So it's about putting yourself first. Uh, I also practice a lot of acceptance. Um, So, you know, things go wrong, you know, things happen, but it is the moment When it happens, that can be tricky, but it's a matter of accepting that and then deciding what kind of behaviors will lead you towards your your goal. So to focus more on where you're going and the action more so than the emotion of the moment. I think that has been super helpful. So I thank my degree for that and I'm happy to share, of course. So thank you for asking. That's uh, very, very interesting. And coupled with that is given that the whole company rests on your shoulders, although you do have a team and a growing team, how do you say no to things? Well, Lisa, that is my Achilles heel. So thank you for finding <laughs> that so very quickly. Uh, I think that is uh, that is super hard because I think everything that I that I do is is a privilege and it's it's a lot of fun. So of course I try to stretch. I try to you know squeeze in as, as much as I possibly can. But sometimes I do have to say no, and I think it's. It's what I said before, you know, you just have to say it. It feels uh, awkward or weird or wrong for a moment. But then you have to remind yourself why you said no. And also make sure to always communicate. So make sure that you're telling someone why you cannot do something. And, and usually it's fine. Usually it's just a perception on on our side. Oh, this is so awkward. Or this person expects, you know, A or B from me. But If you communicate the reasons, then usually it's fine. But I am still working on it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are wonderful tips for all of us listening, whatever our jobs or our lifestyles demand of us. Why is the circular economy so important to you? I mean, we're talking about saying no, saying yes. And I think circular economy is also about prioritizing. So can we really afford not to prioritize or make the circular economy part of our agenda? I think no, because without it, we won't have a future for our kids. I told you earlier, kids, I mean, they're like 10, 10 years away, you know, from me. But the day when I when I do have kids and I want to make sure that they're also that they're well taken care of by the world that we're building together. So I think it's it's essential. We don't have a future without the circular economy. That's the short answer. Yeah, that is a short answer, because I know you could talk about this and you give lectures on it and keynote speeches as well. So then when it comes to your business, it started with sneakers. How did you literally set it up? What are they made from? And how did you render the supply chain to make it possible to sell them? So I, I started at the beach, as, as mentioned. So I was looking down at my feet and I thought, hey, why am I wearing plastics? And the, and the sneakers that I was wearing, they're, they're basically marked as Echo. 
So I don't know what that means, ecological, sustainable. And I started looking into this. I actually cut them in pieces <laughs> and I found a lot of, yeah, a lot of nasty stuff, uh, a lot of plastic foams, things that I never saw before and things that I did not expect to find in a sustainable pair of, of shoes. So that's where I started. And then I did my research and I found some, some nasty numbers. 25 billion sneakers are being produced each and every year. 90% will end up in landfills. There is no plan for, for sneakers or fashion items in, in general. So obviously I found the circular economy and I, I thought, hey, how can I make this happen? And I'm a very practical guy. So I started making phone calls. I, I traveled. We chose Portugal. It was between Portugal and, and Italy because, you know, they're great nations for, for manufacturing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just started building relationships. I think that is the, the core of it. So I don't have a finance background. I don't have a tech background. I don't have a fashion background. I'm a psychologist <laughs> as established. Not only that, but you were a student psychologist at the time. Correct. Without any experience in the world of industry. Correct. I am crazy. <laughs> no, I mean, it's extraordinary. But I just want to jump back a couple of hoops to your mention of landfills. And when it comes to plastics, there is a plethora of different types of plastics, but they are not very biodegradable often. And so do you happen to know how long sneakers or other fashion items will live in a landfill? I would say it varies, but we're talking thousands and thousands of years. I'm for the circular economy, right? Yeah, and I'm for course. biodegradable stuff. I want everything to be repairable, recyclable. But I think we need to focus on the use period. So put the use period in contrast to the time in, in landfills for these products. So you use a fashion product. I think the average is around from three to 12 months. And then we get rid of it. So that, in, in context, is a very, very short time. So mm -hmm. the fashion industry is, is built on volumes and cheap prices. I moderated uh, an event during Fashion Revolution Week, and it's very clear that uh, there is a cost for this, and the cost is paid by workers yeah. and our planet. Which is how Fashion Revolution Week actually began yes. with the disaster in 2013, when 1,100 women mostly were killed in Bangladesh. Yes, and I think not many people know of this. We're so caught up in consumption and wanting things and having a particular style. So I think they, you know, the knowledge, the information is there, but it's my job also as the CEO of this company to incentivize and to educate and to engage people mm -hmm. in actually realizing that this is a fact, but also keeping in mind that uh, fashion is fun. So it's let's fun. then go back to you as a psychology master student while you're simultaneously building this business. So you're making your phone calls to Portugal. You're just cold calling the supply chain people and the manufacturers in Portugal. How do you do this? Well, uh, I am a bit crazy and I... No, I, I it's enjoy, marvellous. <laughs> I, I enjoy every second of it. It's, it's very exciting. And it's also, I think it was kind of unexpected, you know, for the people taking my calls. They were kind of like, well... Who are you exactly? <laughs> um, and I was like, well, you know, I am, I am shameless. We can always ask, you know, I think we ask far, far too, too little yeah. in our everyday lives. I mean, the question is free. Some but it requires confidence to ask. And I say this as a mother of two teens, for example, they will get embarrassed. One of them in particular, I'm thinking of here, I hope she doesn't listen to this. 
<laughs> to go into a bakery and ask for a baguette. She will be full of fear for that. So you have to overcome that fear to start asking questions. So give us a psychology uh, helpful hint here for people who might have that fear. So I would expose myself to situations in which... Verbally, I want to add. <laughs> we have another connotation for that in English. <laughs> Thank you uh, for pointing that out. Um, but to to really deal with situations like that. So, you know, I hope your daughter doesn't listen. But if, um, if say that you have uh, a child like this, then I would try to make this situation happen. So go into the bakery and ask for this. Because if you do it, it will become easier next time. You Obviously, I say that to her, but being her mother, <laughs> she won't listen to me. All of that aside. So then you've started your conversations with the Portuguese. Yes. What happens next? Well, in fashion, we usually work with uh, six samples. I sketched the first ever sneaker, you know, on a piece of paper. Wow. Not being a fashion designer, <laughs> you're some sort of artist, clearly. But whilst you're also studying for your psychology master's, there you are at night Sketching sneakers. Yes, sketching sneakers. Yes. So my my <laughs> my, uh, my professors and my course mates it's they amazing. they've asked a few questions. You know, um, <laughs> I'm sure. But um, no, I think it's about the energy. And then obviously, you know, COVID happened, and uh, we were all you know locked up, different lives and different situations. So for me, it was a way of channeling that energy and mm -hmm. actually doing something productive. But it was a matter of me uh, presenting this sketch to, you know, people in the industry. And obviously, I got a lot of advice. Where did you get the advice? So from different actors, you know, people working with fashion. And in I, Luxembourg or beyond? In Luxembourg and abroad. So I've built, um, yeah, a pretty international team. But we have fashion competence uh, here in Luxembourg. So I think that needs to be promoted. I saw Anna and Scroble here the other week. And I am so happy to see the, the community uh, growing. Also, Fashion Revolution. We have a local chapter here in Luxembourg. So it exists. And obviously, it's been for me to also to leverage on that fact and to build collaborations. I've never believed in competition for a single second of my life. I think if we all come together, then we can also produce, you know, better things together. We uh, hired a few people actually for 3D, for CAD, just to make my initial sketch. CAD being? Um, CAD being. Computer-aided design. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Thank Mr. You. Engineer. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I'm not an engineer, you know, I don't want to. Luckily, we have one in the studio. Yeah, perfect. Excellent. Yeah, so basically handing my sketch to professionals and making it a viable blueprint for a product. And then, you know, we've been working with sample after sample after sample. I've been wearing, you know, sneakers. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, you're not the only one wearing your sneakers. Mr. Fayo is a keen advocate and supporter of yours. And at most events, you'll see him there and you did the most clever thing of all. They are, well, like many sneakers, they are white. And against a suit of a ministerial position, they stand out. So you literally have walking advertisements in the highest places of the land. So well done to you. I want to jump to the other side, to the consumer behavioural side. Now that you've got this pivot in your company as well, and you're thinking about building a team for verified circular products, what is it that drives consumer behaviour? What will make us change the way in which 
we buy, use and extend the use period of our products? That is a very, very good <laughs> question, Lisa. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm thanking you as I'm trying to work out the answer in, so, a, well, I, okay. in a short... Let me break it down a bit because it's a big question, but it's definitely what you're trying to move towards. Yes. <laughs> and I asked the question because let's break it down to one section. As you said before, the fashion industry is all about buy fast, buy quick, buy lots at the moment, linear economy. Yeah. So how are you changing that to still have a business that works when you want the use period of your products to be extended? Great question again. Um, I think we all need to realize that we are living in a linear economy and the circular economy is a great concept, but it is a concept because we have not put that into practice. What we're doing is that we're taking a step, a literal step. In your case, yes. <laughs> um, and that is what I wanted to do because I, I heard from the European Union, from the UN talking about goals and all of it. But I was like, but what does that mean? Yeah, the sustainable How, development goals. People drop them into conversation all the time as if they uh, enhance the conversation. And I don't know what to do with that information, or at least I didn't. And then I was like, huh. Well, you're doing more than most people. Now I am, because now <laughs> I've been able to, you know, to put that into practice, yeah. uh, you know, in my own way, doing my research, you know, <laughs> all of those uh, awkward calls. Um, <laughs> so, so I think for me, it's about first realizing, establish where we are now without trying to sugarcoat anything. Uh, I do a lot of sales, a lot of marketing, but I think it's, it is about being realistic. And this is our first step. Then we need to think about, okay, we know that businesses and institutions, well, they have an idea about what's going on, but what does it look like uh, among the greater population, the mainstream population? Well, that's really the crux of my question when it comes to changing consumer yeah. behavior. Where do the pressures come from? Yeah. Do they come from governmental sides, so, institutional sides, the fashion industry at large, or the consumers? So I would say the consumers. So we do see regulations, we see sustainable goals and what have you. But what I've built or what we did with our first Kickstarter is that we've built a grassroots movement. People saying that enough is enough. We don't want this. And you guys, you need to speed up. You need to keep up with us because this is what we want for our kids, for our future. So I think, of course, we need, you know, top down to happen. I applaud every, you know, new regulation. I always want to see the action. Yeah. You know, I think a piece of paper, a legislation, okay, but is it actually being put to practice? How many people are being fined for greenwashing? You know, where are the numbers? You know, it looks good, but is it politics or is it action? So the grassroots movement, I think, will be essential. What we have right now, which is a beautiful thing, there's a lot of trust, mm -hmm. you know, in our community, but we have the ear of the client and, and we can see what, what they want. So I think in order to make a circular economy happen, to change consumer behavior, we need to incentivize the consumer. So fashion still needs to be about fun. Fashion still needs to be affordable. But people need to realize that there is a cost. Well, the affordable thing is really interesting. Yes. And that's a major problem because I mm. know from my own experience with my dog who eats my shoes and then mm. I have to go and get them repaired all the time. Mm. It is absolutely more expensive for me to go and get my shoes repaired than to buy another pair. Yes. And I do get them repaired 
when they are still repairable. <laughs> but it's more expensive right now to do that. And that's a great example. So I think the most sustainable goods you have, you know, they're already in your house. So I don't want you to buy new stuff only because I'm I'm selling you circular or sustainable. I think you should use your stuff for as long as you as you can. Uh, but when you do go for new stuff, then you need to go with quality and you need to plan your purchase. So our sneakers, for example, we estimate for you to wear them for seven years, seven years instead of, you know, three to 12 months. So that also enables you to spend less every year because you won't get, you know, that second or, or third pair of, of sneakers or trainers because you will be able to repair our sneakers. We're very talented when it comes to investing in real estate and funds, but we should also be thinking about our wardrobe because that is where you can save a lot of money. So go with, you know, classic stuff, you go with quality and the stuff will last you for a long period of time. You're also not paying for a big brand's markup. Yeah. Because today you're not paying for the raw materials, as mentioned. My final little question I'm just going to throw in here. What is a product circular data sheet? So the product circular data sheet was developed by the uh, Minister of Economy here in Luxembourg. So it is a set of questions to basically assess, you know, what is it that this company is doing? I don't want to say it's, it's rating, but it is a set of questions. And if you answer these questions, you also get an idea of, okay, how circular or, or how sustainable is this? So just um, quickly, what, what we're planning for is basically taking the circular concept that we apply to the sneakers and we're applying that to every fashion item on the planet yeah. uh, in time. But basically, we can use a verification tool like this. We can pair it with uh, new technology. I'm talking about you know finance, technology and blockchain to make sure that every fashion item out there has a soul. Yeah. So when you go for repair, when you're repairing your, you know, your footwear, well, that transaction is also logged somewhere. And we know that this is a wow. pair of, of Lisa Burke's uh, <laughs> sneakers. Dog <and> eaten. <laughs> yes. So that is, that is the idea. So it is a tool. So I believe in transparency. So the transparency index today in the fashion industry is below 23%. So even if we want to find stuff out about our fashion items, we really can't. That's a really shockingly low figure about transparency. It is. So the marketplace that we're building will be will be built on transparency yeah. and the right information and also repair, resell and, and recycling. And also what we discussed, consumer behavior. I'm here to unlock the circular economy for the greater population. So what can you do to act sustainably? It's not only just a tag. No, it's an action that you can also um, engage in. I think that's lovely. It gives the power to the consumer and they can make choices with information that has been verified. I'm not going to dive into the whole complication about how to verify things and that whole world of certification where I can think about food examples where it will fall into a black hole. Instead of that, I'm going to move on to Antoine and Xavier. Welcome to you both as well. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Thank Great you to us. have you here finally. I know we were going to record this a couple of weeks ago, but I got COVID for the first time. So wonderful to be back here with you in the studio. Antoine, turning to you first of all, tell us about Circular Lion, what it is and, and how you guys came up with this idea. Yeah, happy to. So um, maybe I'll start with why or how Xavier and me started. Uh, yeah. Actually, as both of us didn't really come back to Luxembourg after we finished our university studies. 
when I saw that he had been completed Entrepreneur First in Berlin, I saw that on LinkedIn, and then I reached out. And then during COVID, or the first lockdowns of COVID, we went for walks, and our idea was to bring entrepreneurship back to Luxembourg, I think was the title of our yeah. first Google Doc that we shared. The main focus was not, back then it was, wasn't clear that it was battery, but it was clear we wanted to do something, build a business that had real purpose for both of us, not just in a monetary sense, but also that made us feel proud of kind of what we're doing. And then from that main idea, we kind of looked into a few markets and then obviously battery, as you know now, uh, was the one that we um, we sticked with uh, because we saw a ton of potential, but we also saw a few problems with batteries. And that's when we decided about a year ago to uh, solve that problem. But it isn't an obvious one. It's obvious perhaps to you guys. I'm looking at you actually, Xavier, because perhaps you've been working with this industry. But for most general people, they wouldn't automatically think about batteries, I don't think. Sure. I mean, usually if you think of batteries, this is a green technology, right? In, in general. Uh, well, I think for most people, if you say batteries, you'll be thinking about the small ones you put into remote controls or something like that. But obviously you're not talking about those batteries. Sure, we're not talking about those. No, we are in the, like our name says it, Circulion in lithium-ion business. Yeah. A new kind of high-density batteries that will electrify our entire economy and is one of the key technologies that we will need to really become a, a green economy in the future. If anybody thinks of an e-bike, then you think of like, yeah, that's a green way how to get from A to B. And then you know from the batteries that you've used in the past that once they reach the end of life, once your batteries are empty from your uh, command or something, then they are recycled. But what does that really mean they, they are recycled? Yeah, sure, they don't end up in a landfill, but currently they are burned, right? They are not reused or not. What we are trying to solve, what we are solving is like maximize the lifetime of every single battery, lithium ion battery. And I think there's like a misconception in our society that currently, yeah, lithium ion batteries is a green technology, but it has the potential to become much greener to save a lot of CO2 if just it becomes econo economically feasible and uh, technically viable in a high throughput manner to access all kinds of lithium ion cells, which are in battery packs. I'll add a, a short one because Philip uh, put it really nicely with shoes or fashion between three and 12 months. It's the same for these batteries, right? So the cells that are inside can be used for, Philip's example, seven years, in, in lithium-ion case even longer. But because the primary application is done for an e-bike example, with heavy use after 12 months, 500, 600 cycles, it's done, the performance isn't high enough, then you throw it away like a shoe. But you don't have to throw it away. If you find, and what we developed is an automated solution to access these cells in an economically viable way and then be able to reuse them. How did you actually, from idea, walking along together, how did you fundamentally come together back in Luxembourg and start this? All right, so I'll, I'll take the business side of the question and Xavier can explain how we technically solve it. <laughs> so I think how we got to it is a combination because both of us have been involved with a multitude of startups and how, how to kind of iterate and find the right um, if you can find the right uh, solution to a problem. And when we looked into not only what industry players told us, but also Xavier knowing how to surf around academia quite well, we saw a ton of evidence that we were actually on the right path and that there was a lot of value in these uh, battery 
So that's how we ended up focusing on that problem because we saw a ton of potential. I mean, the growth rates in batteries, I mean, everyone sees it on the street, just how many scooters, e-bikes and all of that. So um, it's pr quite obvious that the, the volumes are going up uh, incredibly. And obviously you need an economically viable way to access these because you can't do it by hand. Mm -hmm. um, for that, uh, the volumes are way too high. It's a little bit like probably clothing recycling or anything like that. You need machine help and you need a combination between hardware and software to be able to enable yourself or companies to solve this problem. Yeah, and when I was at Entrepreneur First, one thing I learned in Berlin is if you really want to build an, an impactful or a, a company, a startup, which can tackle tough, tough problems and at scale, you need to find a very talented and diverse team. So basically when Antoine and I met, I immediately knew this is not a problem that we could solve the two of us, right? It's about getting the right people on board And we both have a, a network of, of very, very talented engineers, advisors. And um, at the beginning, when, when, the, when, when, when the idea, let's say, let's say grew, um, we, we could talk to those people, right? And when we build a very, very talented team of engineers, robotics engineers, uh, electrical engineers, uh, battery diagnostic engineers, And all of that team, which is very talented, help to develop this machine and to access battery cells in an economically viable way. So um, I think at the beginning it was very, it's a very challenging and therefore super interesting company to launch, startup to launch. But then I think that the exciting thing is to get the right people on board to really make that 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 mission and that vision a reality. Well, that's a completely different skill set. So. When did you start the company? Officially, uh, end of September. Unofficially, we started working on it uh, about a year ago. Okay. I so cannot comment on this because I was still working. <laughs> <laughs> like all entrepreneurs. I, I, I promise he only did it in his free time. <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, yeah, Entrepreneurs are very skilled at having parallel lives, multifaceted lives. No worries. So it's, it's less than a year old, roughly. Yeah. Now, how big is your team? Uh, we're 11 people in Luxembourg and seven people in Germany. Okay. And of that 18-fold team, how many are female? Soon Ouch. the first one. Soon the first one. Okay, so and, and currently none. I don't, I don't say that for any disrespect to you. I say it because I know how hard it is in your robotics industry to get female engineers on board. It's nothing, it's, it's not for the want of trying, I'm sure of it. And I only say that because you mentioned the word diversity. Yeah. Sure. I mean, there are too many talented women out there that that were not taught maybe early on to fail fast and, and, and iterate and do this and do that and, and then maybe try to become an engineer or something. And we are looking for those those talented women out there. But it's like you say, it's a fact. I mean, um, I think we have more than 300 or 400 applicants for engineering jobs there were um, i think less than 10 women wow and um we interviewed most of them yeah. um and then at the end of the day i mean if the if the pool of talented women is not big enough if you have 90 men that apply and 10 women the chance of having one extremely good talented man is just higher just because of the sheer numbers like i said we interview almost every woman No, it was never. It was never a, um, a disrespectful no. thought in your direction. I just know how hard it is to get women in this field. Yeah, that that's true. But I think what Xavier says is a really good point. 
sheer numbers, statistics. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's really hard. But this is then officially every good engineer in electrical robotics, please apply. We're very happy to talk to you. But we actually did one, one lady joining our management team in two months. Uh, but she didn't get the job because she's a lady. She got the job because this is the best one that was there. So I think it's a real problem. But also, I mean, if you look at how many the statistics of people graduating from engineering school, I don't know, 15 percent women, something like that. So it's just it's a numbers game. I at the know. End. I know. I just put it out there as a, you know, because I do also know that having diversity is very crucial to entrepreneurship and getting that uh, whole sphere of different ideas. On the point of risk taking, that's something you also mentioned, Sevi, and I was going to turn to our psychologist in the room. <laughs> Because from what I've read, it is true that women don't like to take risks in the same way as men. Well, <laughs> I, I think and I, I'm also a firm believer of, um, you know, semantics. And, you know, if you talk about education, our school system and the way we treat kids, we're very fast to speak to girls and boys in different ways. Yeah. So I think that is a structural, you know, problem. But I think that we've built it ourselves mm -hmm. so you know the school book example you tell a girl oh you're so nice you're so cute you're so good you're sitting there you're reading you're so quiet oh you're so good a boy you know playing with guns or what have you we're like oh okay come on let's do it let's do it let's play more so i think you know some of course we can talk about biology but yeah, I've also and there is that too and I think there's some amazing examples from Sweden in fact about this and the, the fact that the the changes are there in our biology from the young yes days. and I, I think we should you know we, we need to respect that yeah. but we also need to uh, to read studies claiming the opposite it is about the environment so we have biology but we also have the way we we treat you know, um, different genders. And I think we have examples also in history. You know, we have Vikings, we have, um, you know, Amazon uh, women, very strong, very powerful. So why don't we see that today? Well, I think we built that out of the system. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is a problem. I don't think, you know, it's biology or it's environment. I think it's a combination of both. Mm -hmm. um, but we need to really pay attention the way we... Um, the way yeah. we bring up our kids, because I think that's what you're talking about when you're saying, you know, 15% of, you know, students in engineering are, I thought that number was higher by now. I think yeah. it depends on the type of engineering, actually. It goes down for the, the more chemical, uh, no, chemical engineering, I think is quite good, in fact. I think it goes down towards the electrical engineering. But mm. let, let's just park that problem for the moment. <laughs> I didn't mean to spend Pandora's so box. <laughs> I, I got one comment to say. So if you solve very tough problems right in multiple of different areas robotics engineering you need all the talent areas right and um, sometimes maybe if, if there's a problem of like if the environment is not right maybe to come up with good ideas or being judged you can change somehow also the process how you go about that so for example we we have the circular and flying wheels like how can we get out concepts the fastest way possible and then we have a brainstorming session in the brainstorming session at the beginning nobody judges the idea because we would just want to get all the ideas out so if you have that maybe in schools right where you also try to like boys and girls just get all the ideas out there's no judging judging comes afterwards we still need to grade the good ideas and the bad ideas <laughs> but like okay everybody and that's maybe how you can slowly have all the talented humans out there helping us to solve very impactful 
problems. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have one short. I think that is excellent. And I think we also, I mean, the difference between, you know, the US, Asia, Europe, when it comes to mistakes, you know, I believe in celebrating mistakes. So maybe a brainstorming session. Oh, this is a great idea. Okay, it didn't fly. Well, let's be happy about that because we, we had the courage to try. And the next attempt will be even better. But if you don't have, if you don't make mistakes, well, you're not going to get the better product. So I think that's to echo what you said and, and add that. I, I believe in celebrating mistakes and, and about just going for it. Well, that's a very American attitude, I think. And I know at least two of you in this room spend a lot of time in the States and absorbing that mindset and that philosophy. Now, Antoine, I want you to tell me, why did you choose to, both of you, return and start this in Luxembourg? So there's a multitude of answers to this. In the first step, one important one was that Xavi really wanted to come home. (laughs) (laughs) And he didn't really let me choose too much, but I really wanted to build a company with him because I believe that you need to be extremely complementary when you you build something complex. Um, And that's what I definitely felt uh, between the two of us. So that was the first big reason. The second one, Luxembourg has given itself a circular strategy, circular economy strategy, which due to the fact that we're not very big, we need to kind of stand out with some solutions. And we saw a lot of potential to not only find a good ground to grow our business here, for example, with acceleration programs like Fit for Start, but not only the acceleration, but also all the help. Lux Innovation has given us around R&D and how to be wise on yeah, spending money on research and development. And on the other, the third point, I think which is also a big play for us is obviously our clients aren't majority wise from Luxembourg. So they're, they're from all over Europe. And if you build a multinational team in Luxembourg, everyone kind of feels good here because you can come around with English or French or German. And on the other hand, we can have people in our team that can talk to clients all around Europe in their mother tongue, Mm -hmm. which I think also makes a big difference. So those are a few. And then maybe the last one that is important to mention is that I think that the possibilities in a regulated market like batteries in a country like Luxembourg, where we have the potential, I'm not saying that we're already there and we're doing what we should, should be doing, but the potential of energy ministry, uh, eco ministry, uh, environmental ministry of working together and really building a pilot case, a showcase and showing that we mean what we say and not only get someone from the US to write us a, a really fancy strategy. Have you got someone from the US to write a really fancy strategy? No, Luxembourg's government got one. <laughs> That's useful. Well, speaking of that, you know, there are short routes to people like the Luxembourg government, for Mm. instance. You also mentioned Lux Innovation and uh, Fit for Start. Mm. Where did you get the most help? Different help, I think. So I can comment on the business and I'll give over to Xavier to comment on the R&D part. I think a lot of good help we got from the coaches at Fit for Start. So Sarah and Matthias, uh, to mention them, have, have, have been really great. We really enjoyed it. It's hard feedback, but I mean... Both Xavier and myself, really, we're not big fans of good feedback because we can give ourselves good feedback. We need people to give us constructive feedback. And they've been really amazing at doing this. So, yeah, that's probably where we got the most uh, insight into or help in, in terms of business. Mm-hmm. Mm. And the R&D side? 
on the R&D side, I mean, Lux Innovation was great also with the help of Stefan Berend and his team to help us write and apply for grants. But then also at the Ministry of Economy, we got some some great intros and contacts um, to different companies that are really in our field. So I think we're working on something that gets people also excited uh, about the future and they want to help us in whatever way we can. That's really, really good to hear. I'm going to now move on to the <laughs> the problem of financing companies that are building fast, as both of your companies are. Where do you go for financing? And I know you came directly here from uh, lunch with a possible investor or perhaps current investor, I didn't ask. <laughs> so uh, thank you for arriving on time. <laughs> Almost on time. All, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you go about getting the investors or the investment? Yeah, uh, well, I, I've been in the in the startup game for a few years, so obviously that made it a lot easier because I, the first stage, you you talk to business angels, and and I co-invested with uh, most of the ones that we have today. So I think that was the first step that made it a lot easier for us to to get the the first the first stages of funding, and then uh, after that talking to funds obviously it's also if you've uh, went through this process a few times with other businesses i was involved in it makes everything a little bit easier but traditionally it's not in luxembourg that you find these people especially in our case hardware so we need substantial amounts of money so that's not in luxembourg where you find this and where are you finding it then outside luxembourg uh outside europe maybe <laughs> no no it is definitely um, and i think that's the 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 interesting part, at the end of the day, we're in the energy sector, plus it's circular. So it's, it's it, it ticks quite a few boxes. So it's not only a European topic, I think. Um, but it ticks na- a lot na- of boxes for European mentalities. Yeah, but for the vision we have, and I like to quote this, when we talk to European investors, they're, wow, guys, you have a really big vision. And when we talk to US investors, like, yeah, but give me the big vision. They see how much potential there is in this idea. So that's why I think that it's fundamentally different. And you also have to adopt your speech and what you say to who you're talking to. Because some people will be like, yeah, try to bake first small uh, loaves of bread before you try to build a whole bakery. And the American is like, okay, how many bakeries do you want to build? <laughs> <laughs> so for that, I think it's a, it's a really big difference. I'm then wondering why, apart from Xavier, you wanted to set up here and not in the States. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, because I wanted to work with Xavier. <laughs> oh, you are such a fool, Xavier. Well, well, let's talk about that then, because that's not no, an I, easy I, thing. I, I can give you, no, that, that was for, that is seri- a part of a serious answer. But I think it's also what Xavier mentioned before. You need, if you build up a business and you don't build it up with a network already of talented people, of advisors, of investors, if we would have gone to the US, it would have been, a whole lot of work of building this network that we actually hear we already have, mm-hmm. as well as in academia and, and all these fields. We're definitely going to go to the US since uh, Mr. Trump is gone. There, <laughs> there's more green awareness again there as well. But if you have a basis here where you can build up, like a, it's like when you, you put a, a seed also, you try to put water around it and you moisture it and all that kind of stuff. So that's how we are or were as a company. So I think that's also very important to build that up in the setting that you know, because you know how to, who acts how, and that's very important. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you also have said a couple of times now how important it is that you work with Xavier. He is absolutely fundamental to the business structure. And you've both got two different 
sides of the business. And I'm looking directly at Philippe thinking you carry both sides in your head. (laughs) But I first want to ask you both, Xavier and Antoine, to find a good business partner that you get on with. How do you make sure that's solid? Because that's not easy. It's a different type of marriage. And that's not easy either. I He's only married for six months, so well, he doesn't know yet. Good luck. No, almost, almost years. <laughs> almost almost, year, okay. almost years. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. I'm um, a little bit sceptical. Sorry. No, not, not to you. Just <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of the business here. The yeah. business, business. <laughs> yeah. I think at the end of the day, it, it boils down to communication. And then it comes to like on, one of the first things that Antoine told me, which I appreciate so much that when we uh, started to like create a company culture or put down the rules it's the first rule of our of our company it's radical transparency it is to communicate openly it's like what is bothering you today what roadblocks are there ahead what do we need to nail and from the start um, we had a very very transparent communication and i think uh, we both saw also the complementary things that we have in the other person we saw because I'm not a business guy. Sometimes I like to think of myself, I'm a business guy, but if I need to solve technical problems, it's it's what I'm good at. And Antoine is a is a great, great, great business guy. Um, I've been at Entrepreneur First. I've seen like some of the most talented business people. I, I've met many different people that work in, in business, but they're like entrepreneurial minded, like um, could cold call at any time, could sell you almost anything. We're looking um, at one right now. <laughs> and, 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 and I've, I've seen that in Antoine. I, I've, I, I know the pattern of great entrepreneurs because I've seen it and, and he has that. And, and we are complementary in the sense that I like to dig down into technical things and solve that with the technical team. Like, let's find some solutions. And Antoine has complementary business skills in like setting up the business structure, acquiring customers, building the big vision. Well, you're describing to me what I call charisma. So how important is charisma in building a business? Philip, you or me? Well, I'll, you're both I'll, filling I'll the roles. And I'll, so. and I'll, I'll <laughs> hand it over to Philip later. I think it's extremely important. I mean, call it whatever, call it charisma, call it passion, whatever. You have to be, you have to be able to communicate that what you believe in, in a way that you get people to join your mission, your vision, your, your journey. At the end, it's a journey. Because, I mean, I remember when we started recruiting, <laughs> you can't say, look at our team. You want to be part of it because it's only two. <laughs> so, um, so you have to communicate this. You have to take people on to this pattern. And you also have to, on, on this journey means convincing people that they shouldn't take a secure job, but risk something together with you. And I, I'm also, or we're strong believers, and then also sharing uh, what we develop. I think that's super, super important. And that's something Philip mentioned before, like it's, it's not a European thing to celebrate failures. I think even in Europe to, to not shame failures where it already be a first start in Europe. It's very important because you need to take people onto this journey. And I think it's the ecosystem all around Europe is developing extra- extremely quickly with more and more people wanting to have a job with purpose and not just work at a big corporate and go, I don't know, have have no real mission in life so i think it, it's important but it's it's it because when you say charisma it sounds some uh, it, it's more about really being able to share the str- and making people believe in your strategy so a real plan hey i have confidence that 
if Xavier tells me we're going to develop this thing in two sprints, then his whole team believes him. Because charisma, you might misinterpret it as kind of like a, a show guy. Uh, it's not about show, it's about trust. getting pe trust and, and getting people to believe in your strategy and your plan that you can accomplish that. Philippe. Where do I start? I know I, I agree <laughs> with, with a smile um, as always. Exactly. <laughs> the brightest one. <laughs> uh, I agree with uh, what you just said. And I think you, you said it, Lisa, trust. So you need to be able to build trust in a team and in your network. We also discussed it when we talked about, or you talked about Luxembourg and mm -hmm. setting up here. I mean, for me, it's the same. I mean, leveraging on the community and, and the network that I've been building here as a, as a student, as... You know, this is where I started. So for me, it was never like, oh, do I go to Paris or Berlin or Stockholm or New York? It was like, I'm here, so I'm going to make it happen here. And we'll see what happens. You've been nation branded. <laughs> There we go. Uh, but but I think it's, you know, charisma. I And a friend <laughs> might have said to me, oh, Philippe, you're like a game show. Um, so, you know, I see the, the show part of it, but I also see that it's not... That is not charisma. It is about trust. You know, But the other thing is with you, from what I know of you and from what I've known from you in less time, Antoine, it's not fake. You are this person. As, as much as I know you, you are always like this in every time I've met you. So I don't feel in any way you're putting on a show. Exactly. And I think that is it because we have, you know, there's trust. Yeah. Uh, and I think if you have charisma, you have a way of, of building trust, then that is that is essential. But you also have to pair it with um, you need to be persistent in that. So you need to always show up. I already mentioned I do have a lot of energy. So for me, it's a lifestyle. It's not, you know, I don't come home at 2 a.m. in the, you know, in the night and feel like, oh, that was a long day, you know, with events and pitches and, you know, what have you. But I feel I enjoy it. It's it's a lifestyle. It's a it's a decision that you make. Uh, it's not easy. Some people see the glossy updates and they're like, oh, you were at this event and you're doing this, you're doing that. But they don't see what goes, mm -hmm. what's underneath. The work. It's, it's planning, <laughs> it's a you know, lack of sleep. And it's also a matter of building a team and establishing trust. I mean, you're never going to please everyone. Not everyone's gonna like the charisma. They will find it too much. I believe more is more, but hey, that's me. And it's been a super warm welcome here in Luxembourg, maybe because that is slightly different than what people need. So, you know, I'm lucky that way, but I'm also just being uh, myself. Yeah. So I think that's what people see in you and that's, that's why they, uh, they trust you. Final question to you all. The pros and cons about formulating a company in Luxembourg. You've told us about things that have helped make it happen, to use the nation branding, but what could be done better? What would help you more in Luxembourg if you were to give advice to any entrepreneurial hotspot, whether it be an incubator, accelerator, governmental institutions, what could help you more? Feel free to be honest. Radical transparency, I think is the phrase. <laughs> you said it, you said it. <laughs> What has helped us so far a lot is University of Luxembourg with collaborations and talent that we hire here. But we need even more of University of Luxembourg. So we need more talented people here in Luxembourg. So we need to have an even bigger uni. We need to invest more and more and more into research and build that up bigger. We have a lot in, in, in finance, but that's changing quickly, the economy in, in finance in Luxembourg. Yeah, a bigger university. 
and maybe like a not too expensive shop floor uh, where we can build some stuff that that would help so <laughs> you mean like a prototype floor yeah like a know, like a production site a production yeah. site yeah. build our machines yeah that would help oh. like if fit for start would have like a big hall where we can put up some robots and do some experiments i think of one amazing mechanical engineer that we could have hired and when he looked at the rents in luxembourg he decided not to come and told us okay but you need to pay me x more just because the the life here is so expensive so maybe also there i don't know how to concretely do it i think there's two main points i think we need to be aware that if we don't get this housing topic under control we're missing out on a ton of talent oh you're opening um, up an entire so, no no no, no, no <laughs> let's let's not open that pandora box i, I just wanted to oh, that's such it. a painful one yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it definitely is and i think it's not a quick one to solve but there are things that can be done and I think the right people need to think about this, that it can that can really become an issue. Um, it is an issue. Or it is already an issue. It's an issue that right. Luxembourg is missing out, yep. like you said, on brilliant talent, yep. because it's not in another brilliant person's interest to move here and lose money because of rent or housing costs. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And for example, in, in Paris, companies from Entrepreneurs First that founded there, they got doubled down the funds that they raised from the French state just because they funded in Paris, because it's more expensive to fund in a big in a big city. So the state helped them to set up uh, their first offices or, or shop there. So yeah, if you if prices are high and you don't want all the entrepreneurs running to Berlin because I mean their prices are rising as well, but it's still cheaper there than here. I mean you need to support that. You need to support the ecosystem. It's cheaper in London than here. Yes. So <laughs> I, I would also say, you know, the University of Luxembourg, the incubator. So my incubator family, you know, they've been incredible, super help. So I would really, really advise any startups, you know, at the university to to take advantage of that because we have amazing people there working to make entrepreneurship in Luxembourg happen. Yeah, that is my big shout out. But I want to know what could be done better. I mean, I am in the fashion industry. There is no fashion scene in, in Luxembourg. If you compare it to Paris or Milan or London or even Stockholm or what have you. But I think that is that is good and it's bad. I mean, I'm a very positive person. So, <laughs> so I, I believe in that we're building it. We need more uh, diversity, I think, in the investor uh, landscape. We live in a super international place, but we also need to make sure that the right efforts are, you know, targeted towards the right startups. Um, and we're also talking about, you know, circular economy and sustainability. I believe, you know, to some extent, we're still assessing Uh, green or circular startups with old assessment tools. So we're looking for the same return of investment as would we for, you know, a normal startup. So we talked about that when I, you know, discussed mm -hmm. the circular economy and consumer behavior and, and our sneakers. Well, it's not the same and it is a capital intense industry. I mean, we're racing, we're planning to raise funds, but it's it's taken me a while, you know, to set up the infrastructure for that and also to learn myself. You know, I'm talking about the fashion industry now and we're yeah. talking about Luxembourg. So obviously I hope in 10 years that I can give that to someone. Mm -hmm. That would be uh, a dream come true. But I think we need we need more money flowing towards, you know, green startups because there is a discrepancy and that goes, you know, that is worldwide. We see There's that. another discrepancy, which is that most investors, again, <laughs> going back to diversity. Okay, I'm looking at you, Anton. How many female investors have you had lunch with? 
We even have one female investor. You have one out yes. of how many? <laughs> the ratio is not very good, <laughs> but it, but it's double digit. Well, what I mean, again, it goes down to risk, and uh, there are not many female investors. But the reason that even springs to my mind is that actually, I think there are many people. If you can help them learn the investor story of how to invest. And I think many females would actually like to invest in social or environmental projects given a purpose and a reason. And if it was if it was said in a good way to them, I think they would be more inclined to invest. I think there's a whole other sphere of investment that could be tapped there. Yeah, I agree. It's 2022. So yeah. I think sometimes we're all just assuming, you know, that everything is super equal. Everything is super green, but it's also only just a trend mm -hmm. before we make it reality. And I think you know, it goes for investors as well. I mean, I don't have a finance or a tech background. Uh, I'm a psychologist, but, you know, my learning curve is, is you know, it's pretty steep by now. So say, basically, I would say it must be vertical. <laughs> it's like so, space. So I, I think we should also be, and I sound so diplomatic right now, but we should also be kind to ourselves. I mean, we're trying to make it work. And I think what's beautiful here is that we're all trying to collaborate. You know, I mm -hmm. think the entire landscape in Luxembourg, everyone wants to do that. Yeah. Um, and that is that has been a great help for me as well. But you, you have to condense. Yeah, I would like to add one more point to your question. I think because setting the infrastructure is one point. And with this, I mean, Lux Innovation, I mean, uh, grant programs. I mean, all of these things are great. At the end of the day, no company becomes successful because it get, get, gets grants or anything kind of help. But it becomes successful because it can show traction. Mm -hmm. Right. So there, I think the Luxembourgish government can do a lot more in terms of also giving these local companies the traction they need, whatever it's with, with Philippe, it might be, uh, I don't know, uh, all ministers have to wear uh, his shoes or, or I mean, it, it, it's simple things that can make a huge impact yeah. for, for entrepreneurs, for everyone who works for these companies. So I think there we have a, a a big opportunity in Luxembourg because we're not that big. It's not like a German government who has 15,000 layers of hierarchy. We should use this. We should we should say, listen, we can do this. We know the ecosystem. We put a few players together and then we set up a project where everyone can contribute to. Any final words, any call out to our audience, our listeners? I know that, Philippe, you're looking to team up with external circular products to grow the marketplace. Yes, so major shout out to everyone who's listening who know of a sustainable circular product or brand or if you you yourself are running a circular sustainable uh, fashion brand, please do reach out to me because we are building a marketplace. We are coming together as a community so that we can all sell more and make more money while still making the world a more circular place. Let's put it like that. So basically, like we discussed, Lisa, it's about converting customers into users mm -hmm. so that we can all take action. Uh, <laughs> so I don't believe in I don't believe in consumers. I believe in users. I need that is what we need. Do reach out to me. That's a very good uh, twist in the word rather than being a consumer, being a, a thoughtful user. Yes. Mm, I like that. Any final words to you both, Xavier and Anton? We, we would like to shout out to all potential engineers. Especially female Especially ones. female, <laughs> uh, but not exclusively, no, of course. No, the best ones, obviously. Only the best uh, in fields of electrical engineering, 
but also mechanical engineers, robotic engineers, because we're and also software engineers, because we love to work with the best uh, and live our cultural values together with people who are really am- ambitious and want to change something in terms of not only the job they do, but also for having a purposeful life. And Xavier, you have the final word. Oh, thanks. So, yeah, anyone who, who wants to help to electrify our economy faster and wants to help to, to maximize the life of every lithium-ion cell when it comes to mechanical engineering, building the machines, software engineering that do the models for the diagnostics, anybody that is looking for something exciting and meaningful to do and who wants to put a lot of effort in something to achieve something good, happy to hear from you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you all for your time. And uh, I can't wait to see how it flourishes in the coming months and years. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Pleasure. The Lisa Burke Show.